Welcome to the Crux of the Matter, Episode 2. My name is Todd Peppercorn. And my name is Scott Stigmeyer. It's great to be back. We'll get our act together here eventually. <laughs> um, in our first episode, we discussed the theology of interruptions, how it is that being a pastor is really about being present with God's people and word and meal. This week, we thought it would be fun to do a little bit with the text for Epiphany 3, which is Mark 1, verses 14 to 20, 3b, I should say. Scott, why don't you read that for us, and then we'll uh, we'll riff from there. Okay, so this is Mark uh, chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hands, hired servants, and followed him. That's the reading for this Sunday, Epiphany 3. Well, this is kind of, uh, I don't know, this is like an old home week text for you and me. About a mm -hmm. thousand years ago, we, uh, uh, we worked together at Concordia Theological Seminary uh, doing admissions. And so this is kind of, I don't know, one of those texts that seemed like it was always... Uh, always used or always presumed as a, um, this is one of the texts you use to convince men to become pastors, basically. Um, and so uh, if we're going to be the, uh, the show that really talks about being a pastor, it seems to me like it makes sense for us to ask the question, why would you want to be a pastor? And that is a fair question, and uh, <laughs> you and I have answered that question one way or another, actually professionally, as you mentioned, working for the seminary for a number of years, myself um, on a couple of different occasions, I confess, and just simply in parish ministry, it is, I believe, and have always believed, as you have, that it is part of being a pastor is to raise up young men for the ministry, to, to train them, to mold them, and form them from their youth on to uh, sending them off to, to, to school for their more formal education. But um, I always have a, uh, I don't know, I have a tension. I felt it when we worked together at the SEM. Um, and, uh, and after uh, 15 plus years of being a parish pastor, I, I definitely feel this now. And that is, why would I want to convince somebody to become a pastor? This is really hard work. <laughs> and, and there are lots of jobs that are hard work. It's not like pastors have some sort of, uh, um, some sort of special problem. I, I think that we can easily, as pastors, become, uh, become martyrs and kind of, oh, well, I, you know, I never see my family. I, I, you know, I don't make any money. I, have, I struggle with all of these different things, all of which is true to a greater or lesser extent. Um, but I don't think that that is nearly as uh, – I don't think that that's special. I think that that's actually right. quite common. It's pretty universal. It's, yeah. And so why is it that uh, – why is it that 
I would I would want to encourage someone to be a pastor today now. Can can I give my answer to that? Yes, because I and then I'll tell I have, you why you're wrong. Okay, great. Let's do it that way because you know I struggle with this too, Todd. And listen, man, the text we just read is instructive for us. You know, I, I was as I was preparing for my sermon for tomorrow. I, you know, as I sometimes do, was looking at some commentaries. And one commentary I looked at pointed this out, which I thought was profound. It said that in the in the Jewish world of that period, um, it wasn't it was not unusual for rabbis to to gather around themselves about a band of disciples, but the ordinary way was for the disciple to seek the rabbi and request to become a disciple of that rabbi. But Jesus does not do it that way. These guys do not come to Jesus saying, we would like to follow you. In every call, in every one of the accounts that we have, um, you know, Matthew, the tax collector, James, John, Peter, and Andrew, that's almost half of them, five, right, that I just named. These guys are all guys that the rabbi, breaking custom, went to and said, you follow me. And they did it. So I think it is still part of our calling as pastors to look at individuals that we believe um, might have capacity to be a good pastor and say, you follow me, be my acolyte. And, and then as I follow Christ, that's what Paul told Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ. And then we're not really making them pastors. They can still wash out or change their minds or or whatever, but the Lord calls people, he always has, he always does, with a few exceptions of like Moses and the burning bush where it was direct, God calls people through the church and primarily through the spokesman of the church, uh, you pastor. So I think that it is up to the pastors to say, you should consider this. And that doesn't mean they have to do it um, because they may have very good reasons not to do it that we're not aware of. But I, I have always seen this as, um, yeah, we should be. No, but I think really your question had more to do with, but this is this can be, um, it, it can be a hard calling. And wouldn't we be more charitable to say, you know what, get yourself a nice little nine-to-five job where you'll make a good salary and you'll have relatively low stress. Wouldn't we be more, you know, kind to encourage people that way? But the Christian life is a life of, it is a life of martyrdom. And, and I'm, I know I'm being long-winded. This will be the last sentence I say for this. Um, I don't believe D- you. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in call and uh, cost of discipleship. Now he's not just talking about clergy. This is the famous quote that I never, it sticks in my brain. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So when we're calling people to the ministry, we are calling them to bear a cross, just like Jesus did. There is no question. And we have to be blunt about that. Not not crass, but we have to be frank and honest as well. Yeah. That's my I, that's um, my little spiel. That's your stick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and maybe a maybe a part of the problem or part of a part of what I see is the difficulty is that um my my anxiety about or concern about encouraging someone to become a pastor really stems not about my concern about them becoming a pastor, but more about my own anxiety about being a pastor. Yeah, sure. 
And so it kind of points to my own, um, my own vocational self-doubt and my own fear that uh, either I am wasting my time or my money or I am not, um, or I am not fulfilling the office that I've been entrusted to um, or I am neglecting one of the other offices that I have been entrusted with, namely as a husband and a father. And so it, it kind of, it kind of really sticks a point into our identity to say, okay, are you really, do you understand who you are as a Mm. pastor Mm. and, uh, and why you would want someone else to do this? Um, you know, Groucho Marx said, <laughs> you know, not the Karl great Marx. theologian Groucho yeah. Marx. Yeah, but you know, but, but also not the father of modern day communism either. Okay. The comedian Groucho Marx, who is right. also very profound in some ways, said, "I would never want to join an organization that would have a person like me as a member." <laughs> Funny, right? Funny. And yep. it's circular. It's circular, but I think it's exactly true of being a pastor in a way. I am not. I am. I am not worthy to be a pastor. I am a failure in many ways as a pastor, and that is precisely what makes me fit. I think. And you, if a man, if if I'm when I was a recruiter at the seminary, and if I heard a man talk as if he felt confident about being a pastor and how great it would be to be a pastor and how, how he flag. thinks he would be so good, I would immediately try to try to slam the door on that guy guaranteed if I could. Yep. But if I hear people saying, you know what? I want to serve the Lord. I, I, I feel a sense of wanting to serve. I, I do like theology. I like the church. I like being involved in the church. Other people are telling me I should think about this, but I have all these doubts and I, you know, I'm worried about student debt, not making any money and all in the, in the long and weird hours. That guy is a guy, even if he's already been a pastor for 20 years, that guy is a guy I think is probably where he should be. Yeah, I I agree, and it's um, I don't know you you read read Paul's epistles, and and Paul is not the um, well the only time Paul Paul really demonstrates a kind of uh, self confidence that that could border on arrogance is when someone else is doubting his call. You bet. And, you know, I'm thinking particularly of, of Galatians, for example. Uh-huh. Um, Paul, it, it's kind of like, I can doubt my own call and, yeah. and God in his mercy will, uh, will entrust this to me again and again and again. Um, but if you're doubting my call, you're not actually doubting me. You're doubting God and the office that God has entrusted us to. Yeah, um, I think that's a really great distinction to make. Yeah. And so uh, there, there is this, I think that there's this great sense when we talk about, about encouraging men to be pastors, striving to, uh, striving to be better pastors ourselves, um, and asking and kind of facing the self-doubt that, you know, I for one face pretty much every day as a pastor oh, yeah. uh, in some fashion or another. Whenever these things happen, we kind of have to ask the question of, well, Am I having this self-doubt because I am looking at my own my own worthiness? I'm looking at my own ability to kind of tick off these uh, these qualifications and this to-do list or whatever it is that you might want to call it. Um, or am I actually looking to 
to the Lord as the as the strength of the office. Um, that's a pretty big distinction. And I know for me that I am always going to be tempted to look into myself and and uh, you know there's frankly not that much good to look at in there. Well, listen, Todd, do you, uh, I'm sure you know this, but some of our hearers might not know this. Um, are you familiar with Martin Luther's sacristy prayer? Sure. Do you happen to have it? Um, I am I am Googling it now. I do have it hanging on the wall in my yep. sacristy. Framed. I do and I pray that every Sunday before I step out, I'm gonna, when I have my, it's on my, it's on my vestry wall. So when I yep. put on my vestments, I say, and I, and, and even though I pray it all the time, I, I don't think I can recite it from memory and I'm, and I'm not going to take the time to Google it right now. But basically he says in that prayer at least twice that Lord, if it were left up to me, I would ruin your church. So you have simply got to be involved here. You've got to intervene and use me. And um, I think that that is very, very profound. And it really is something that a pastor, if he's spiritually mature, he never outgrows that prayer. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, and while you were talking there, I Googled, you Googled it. it. So let me read Good. it. Please. Did. Uh, this is uh, from, from Luther's works. Uh, translated by James Kellerman, founded on uh, the uh, Wittenberg site. Uh, Lord God, you have appointed me as a bishop and pastor in your church, but you see how unsuited I am to meet so great and difficult a task. If I had lacked your help, I would have ruined everything long ago. Therefore, I call upon you. I wish to devote my mouth and my heart to you. I shall teach the people. I myself will learn and ponder diligently upon your word. Use me as your instrument, but do not forsake me. For if ever I should be on my own, I would easily wreck it all. That See, twice in there. And I think, I don't know when Luther wrote that prayer. And we have to remember, Luther was not primarily called as a, as a congregational pastor. He did a lot of parish work. But his, I mean, you know, I know he, I know he served in the, uh, the local parish quite a bit when Bugenhagen was away and, and so forth. But he was a professor. I mean, he was an academic. That was kind of his thing. But he saw himself as a, as a I like that, you know, he uses the word bishop and, a, you know, caregiver of souls. But he just had this humility and this awareness that, Lord, it can't be about me. This just can't be about me. And um, I wonder if James and John and Peter and Andrew, you know, Mark, of course, in, in typical fashion, makes the point that they left their nets and went, and they left their dad and went. They got rid of, you know, yeah. they immediately followed Jesus. They didn't, there was no deliberation. There's no conversation. As Mark records it, Jesus is the only one who does any talking. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that they, they're in, you know, there was more to the story than what Mark records. The way Mark records it is, is if God calls, People, people listen, <laughs> and um, and no, was Peter and Andrew and James and John were they prepared? And you know what it says? It doesn't just say come and you will be fishers of men. He says come and you will become fishers of men. I will make yeah. you. I will form you. It's a process. It's a process. It doesn't just it doesn't just happen kind Bam. of uh, right. kind of overnight. No. Um, and, and again, who's doing the work, right? God is, God is doing the work. 
Um, I don't know, it, you know, in kind of typical Mark and fashion, we get that word immediately in there as well. And immediately they left everything and followed him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and, and I was struck, I'm not looking at the Greek text right now, but um, I was struck when I, uh, when I looked at this earlier in the week that the word uh, follow me is not, um, is not, it's not, no, it's not that. Look no? it up. That's okay. what I thought it would be. It's, yeah. um, oh, I'm going to have to look it up now. It's like doteo or something like that. Um, okay. It's a, it's a different word. And I okay. was, and I was quite stunned by that because, you know, akalutheo means really to, to, uh, to acolyte hear me. and do or mm-hmm. to, right. Yeah. Acolyte me to, to mm-hmm. hear and listen something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But, um, but this, but this had a, uh, this has a very different, um, a different sense about it. I've uh, I've almost got it here. Give me just a second. You're, you're digging up the Greek text here. Yeah, I'm dig I'm digging it up while we're um, while we're I talking think, here. I, I think for future reference, um, I'm going to need to have my Google already open and my Greek yep. New Testament at hand when we yep. do this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Especially when we're doing textual stuff like this, which is yeah. frankly is kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, right there we go. Greek New Testament, yeah, it's dote, um, you know, mm, which which okay. really means something. Um, uh, come right now, yeah, which is kind <laughs> of what you would, uh, which is what you would expect, you know, being Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, come, uh, come now, yeah, dote apiso. So come after me right now, yeah, is, and I will, and I will work you. I will make you poeso. I will make you to become. Fishers of men. See, that's what I meant. There's and, that formation. It's a, yep. and that's the, that's the, that's sort of the buzzword in seminary circles. We are forming yep. you. I will make you. It's not like, oh, you know, come and you are then now suddenly because you're coming fishers of men. No, there's a training involved and it's a lifelong thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like that it's uh, that um, poieso, uh, you know, make really is, is a work. I will, I will work you into becoming officers of men. This is, there is a, uh, there is a shaping sense about that, that, um, you know, that almost has a, uh, a, a carpenter sort of sound to it. That, that if you look at a master carpenter, a master carpenter, which Jesus would have been at that point in his life, I expect. Um, if you look, if you watch a master carpenter, it takes, I will build you. Um, it takes hours and hours and hours to work this wood and mm-hmm. an incredible patience and and time um i had uh, back when i was in wisconsin uh, we did these uh, things with our school we would do a we called it a steeplechase where we would go and visit lots of different churches um and i remember going to a, a coptic church which is uh South of Milwaukee, north of Kenosha. It's not that, you know, it's like an hour from you then. This would really be worth a drive for you because it's an unbelievable building. Um, Coptic churches uh, are uh, are sort of an oddity in that they, they're they structured a lot like an Eastern Orthodox church, but they're not Eastern Orthodox, but they do look- have a... Um, they have an iconostasis, so they've, so they've got a lot of the features of an of an, uh, a Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox church. But um, 
their iconostasis was entirely hand carved out of, I believe, Bethlehem olive wood. It was like 50,000 individual pieces of wood that were tongue and groove. So there's no glue, no nails. Um, and I cannot even fathom how long it took to build something like that. Now, I don't think that that we can really look at uh, forming or shaping a pasture and really see that as any different in terms of time, that this is something that takes time. Immediately, they follow him. Yeah. It is not immediately they're now pastors and everything is all done and they're, you know, and they're good and they go and everything's, everything's hunky-dory. Right. One final thought on that. Okay. And that was okay. that, that immediately they, they follow him. So he, you know, come after me now, immediately they follow him. Um, but then it takes years of years of this forming or shaping on their part. And as we uh, learn learn in Acts, this forming or shaping doesn't actually stop when on right. Pentecost. Um, so this this continues. This is a yes. uh, this is a lifelong process. As pastors, we are continually formed and and shaped along the way. No, I agree, and I think it's. I even think of that in terms of just being a Christian. Simply being a Christian disciple, I always make this point when I talk to my uh, confirmation parents at the beginning of the year. I send out a letter in which I say that the spiritual formation or the faith formation of your child is not comprised in the 100 or so hours they spend with me in three years, but is comprised of listening to thousands of sermons uh, and Sunday school lessons, home devotions, prayers at bedtime, and the confirmation classes that, you know, formation is a, is a, is a lifelong thing. And it's bigger than just taking a few classes here and there. Yeah. Amen. Um, at this point, we can probably take an offering and then continue with our final <laughs> session. One of the things that we've, uh, that we've kind of knocked around as doing as a part of these is, um, uh, is something at the end of, you know, what's bringing you joy? What is, uh, um, what are you reading? What are you What are you finding of uh, particular interest this week? Um, I had I had one um, just to uh, just an observation. Um, one of the classes that I do here at Holy Cross is a uh, uh, a class. I call it Table Talk. Um, we mostly read the Book of Concord, although we do other things along the way. Um, and uh, this past year, we've really been doing a study of the creeds. Um, and this past Thursday was our last class. So uh, it so happened that Thursday, uh, Concordia Journal from uh, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, uh, their winter issue came out, and they had a couple articles in it on creeds, uh, including one by David Maxwell on the Nicene Creed. This is in the winter 2015 issue of Concordia Journal. I will uh, I will put a link to this in the show notes. Um, and in this uh, in this article, he kind of lists what he sees as as three purposes to creeds today. One is as a uh, as a doctrinal sun summary. <clears throat> um, one as an as an outline of the Bible, basically, um, and then the third as a uh, as a pedagogical tool. 
and and he sort of outlines the strengths and weaknesses of these and uh, and looking at the looking at the history. Um, we have a tendency with creeds to kind of um, I don't know to kind of think rather minimalistically. I think, mm. um, and say, okay, if I can uh, if I can confess the the Apostles' Creed, then that's all I all I really need in order to be a Christian. And of course, there's the the perennial question of, well, does that mean I can go to communion then? Um, yeah. I thought he did a I thought he did a nice job not uh, not an overly in depth article, but a nice job of kind of summarizing how are how do creeds function today. And where will they go from there? Well, if I, I may know, have add, you read, to have the, you seen that? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see the article yet. I haven't gotten my copy of the Concordia Journal yet. Or if I did, I, I didn't see it because I've been out of town the last couple of days. Oh, um, that's right. But I, of those three, I'm not sure if I heard you say, "Can I?" Um, a, and you know, listen, I'm a Lutheran. I'm a confessional Lutheran. I'm not a Baptist. But what about? the effect of making a personal confession of one's faith. Um, you know, it says in Romans, right, that you believe with the heart, but you confess with your mouth. And with, right. you know, you know, you're justified by your confession of your faith. And so it's not just a, a pedagogical and, and um, you know, outline and summary and all that. I would add to that it is also uh, – confessing with your mouth that which was in your heart which is essential to what it means to be a christian there are no there are no invisible christians right right well and um the 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 critique or part of the critique that i gave to our class cuz i had them read it um was that uh, there is there's is very little in in there about worship you know yeah. i always think of um I, I think of, of the the beginning of um, the beginning of the Athanasian Creed that we worship the Trinity yeah. in unity, etc. Um, yeah. It's not that we that we understand or that we diagnose or you know whatever, but right. uh, but that a creed is is really doxology, saying back yes. to God what He has said to us. Yes. Um, to uh, quote Nagel at the introduction to the uh, to Lutheran worship. Um, so there, so there are elements to that, and and we can easily make creeds into a uh, kind of a, a line in the sand, a demarcation line, and forget that um, that element of doxology that that God is the one who has to get back to our gospel. God is the one who has called me to this faith, who has enlightened me by the gospel, sanctified me with His gifts, etc., and that that. And that I am able to confess that faith that has been delivered to me is a gift. So anyway, that's absolutely. Uh, uh, I thought it was a. Uh, I thought it was a good little. Uh, a good little thing. So what's uh, what's got you? Uh, what's got you cooking this week? <clears throat> okay. Well, as the other eminent philosophical uh, luminary um, once said, Monty Python. Um, now for something completely different. Um, right. Uh huh. I have been rereading um, a book that um, I think that uh, we need to pay attention to. As Todd knows, but many won't, many of the listeners will not know yet about me, is that I am studying bioethics, and I've been a, doing this formally for a couple of years. And one of the parts of bioethics that I've been kind of researching has to do with 
um, human sexuality and the development of human sexual orientation. And, you know, I'm obviously I'm a traditional, I believe what the Bible says about sexuality and sexual morality unquestioningly. But there are still there are still a lot of questions about how this happens, why this happens, what to do about it and, and so on and so forth, how to respond. And one book that I read that I am now rereading, and I'm glad I am, is by a guy named Bailey, and he is a professor of psychology at Northwestern University. And by no means is he a conservative person. Uh, He professes no Christian faith at all in the book. But he wrote a book, forgive me here, the title, The Man Who Would Be Queen. And it's all about why are there some boys who are extremely effeminate who grow up to be most likely homosexual men and a small percentage of them transsexuals or people with gender dysphoria, gender identity disorder. And it's a fascinating read, and it is a small percentage of our population, but it is a politically strong part of our population, and it's affecting the church. And I think we need to be better educated about these issues personally. And so that's what's I wouldn't necessarily say it's giving me joy, but it's I find I'm finding it intellectually satisfying to try to fill in my own my own gaps in my knowledge on this area, so I can hopefully help the church and help my parishioners respond in a more biblical and sensitive manner. Cool. Yeah. I, it I is don't cool. think I have, uh, yeah, I don't think I've read that book. Um, I, you need uh, to, I read it's a good one. I do. Okay. I think, I think what's you should. That, um, what's that author? Is it Nora Jones that wrote that book about, uh, uh, the, the woman journalist that wrote the book about uh, spending her spending a life as a man. Do you know the book yeah, I'm talking about? I do. I don't uh, think it's Nora Jones because Nora Jones is a I don't singer. Think so either. Uh, yeah, I think it's called a self-made man or something like that. And it's yes, about she that's spent, it. She spent like a year disguised as a man and tried to in in and, and successfully, uh, you know, got a male tip you know gender typical job and began to make male friends and you know went to join the bowling right. male bowling club and went to strip clubs and drank at the bars and you know right. to learn what it is it is a that's another fascinating read these are not written from a christian perspective so there's going to be plenty of things that we're simply not going to agree with their conclusions but we do we can learn from the social sciences certain things about human behavior it doesn't mean we have to change our biblical moral conclusions but we but the social sciences as they observe human behavior still can teach us some things absolutely and and there is very much a sense that as as pastors um as pastors i need to understand who it is that i'm caring for and yeah. the only way that I can understand that is if I is if I understand what the challenges are. Yeah, the book is Self-Made Man, One Woman's Year Disguised as a Man by Nora Vincent. So okay. that's Very the good. that's that the close. author. I'll uh, I'll stick that in the in the show notes as well. The other book, Perfect. by the way, that she wrote that I absolutely really love is called Voluntary Madness, Lost and Lost and Found in the Mental Healthcare System. Uh, oh my goodness! Uh, incredibly powerful book where she spent a year going to three different, um, or eighteen months going going to three different um, mental institutions and passing herself off as mentally ill. Um, mm. Really, an unbelievable book. We can talk about that another time, though, because sounds great. I think that we have covered enough for this week. It's been a great Absolutely. episode. Always a pleasure talking to you, Scott. 
Yep. And uh, say goodbye to our friends. <laughs> all right. All right. God bless. And, and uh, until next time. All righty. Take care. Bye. Bye now.